You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. Whoa! What was that, Riz? We have a new intro, Jay. I don't know if you guys heard that. You might have to rewind and you check should. it out again. You should stop, rewind, and listen again because it's awesome. Yep. Welcome to the show, episode 17. Everything's looking up. Not really, but we got a new intro, so at least there's that. So welcome to episode 17. 17. Yeah. <laughs> I've been waiting a long time for this, like since Seriously. episode one. I know, I know. It's yeah. exciting. All right. So uh, we have a big episode, right, Jay? We have a really big episode, a lot of stuff to cover, of course. Uh, so let's dive right in. Honest Abe's housekeeping hangouts, go. When he growed up, this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. All right, so welcome to Honest Abe's. First and foremost, thank you guys for making episode 16 our most popular episode so far. It was the fastest stream downloaded the most in one day. We're so thankful for that. Uh, landed us at number 77 on the Apple podcast charts. And uh, and thank you. 77. That's yes. pretty crazy. It's good. That's, it's that's, good. A, that's an all Apple podcast. So keep listening. Keep turning on your friends. Keep indoctrinating your kids into moderate values. Yeah, very important. Very yes. important. So uh, next piece of, uh, of business to get to here. Uh, as we talked about last week, we were going to do an episode this week about all things voting uh, some history of various processes of voting, voter fraud claims. We were even yep. going to get to the Electoral College, et cetera. We made that promise. Yeah. But as most of you are uh, probably aware at this point, we were hit with a political bomb of sorts this week in the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So we needed to quickly pull an audible and uh, put a new show together. Uh, yep. Barring anything unexpected happening between now and then, you can expect an episode on voting and voter fraud next week. Never know these days, though. You no never promises. know. <laughs> but in the meantime, Jay, promote our stuff. I will. We have a Discord. We're getting some more feedback, which means you guys are listening and responding. We appreciate it. We could always use more. Keep it up. We got products. We got mugs. We got baby onesies. We got travel mugs. We got t-shirts. We got masks. Stuff for the whole family. So as Riz, as Riz always says, indoctrinate your friends, family, your kids into moderate values, buy some stuff and show your love for the pod and yep. show your love for moderation. Yes. So uh, next piece of, of business here, we're just moving right along. A reminder that on 11-3, election night, that is a November 3rd, election night 2020, uh, we are hosting our first ever quadrennial down the middle live stream. Join us as we react live over YouTube to everything that is happening in real time. We're going to eat some good food, have many drinks, no matter who the victor is likely to be. And as an additional bonus, you can be annoyed by my kids and my dog. So put it on your calendar. Calendar, it's going to be fun. Next piece of business. Again, just moving quickly here. In the interest of time, we are going to skip We Care A Lot this week and bring it back next week. 
Uh, we did get some 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 responses from last week, so thanks so much for everyone who has contributed. We don't want to think we don't want you to think that we're ignoring you. Thank you for contributing to our Discord and uh, making us happy. Keeping that going. Uh, next, okay, I, I'm moving quickly here, Jay. That's good. I'm feeling good about it. I know we got a lot to get to. So uh, we have one big announcement uh, before we get into the bulk of our episode here today. For all those who have been following along, a few weeks ago we told you about a media company that we're forming. Uh, under that media company, we are going to be launching an online publication called The Intermediary. The Intermediary is going to be your only source for truly balanced content on politics, culture, and more, featuring pieces from journalists who span the political spectrum from far left to far right. You'll be able to visit our site and read a piece from a left-wing point of view and, with the ease of a simple click, be directed to a right-wing perspective on the same or similar topic. So, one of the things that was very important to us was to find an editor-in-chief for this venture who would embody all of the values that this project encompasses. And we have found who we consider to be the perfect guy for the job. He happens to be with us here right now. Surprise. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Clay Cogman. Hello, world. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, man. I'm glad you could join us. The name may sound familiar to you if you happen to be a fan of the show. We gave Clay a call, if you remember, a few weeks ago to discuss what is now a sort of innocuous racial back basketball incident that happened and was out of our news cycle before any of you could even say the name Donald Trump. Uh, if you're a super fan of the show, and I mean a real super fan, you may remember way back to episode 10 when we had our good buddy and brother, Professor Mark M. Cogman, on the show to participate in a topical episode about supposed liberal bias in our education system. If you haven't checked that one out, it is still to this day one of my favorite episodes. That's episode 10. Check it out. Keep saying supposed. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Uh, obviously, Mark and Clay are brothers. Now, Justin and I played in bands with Mark, as we told you before, for many, many years. We went to college with him in Boston. All the while, his little brother Clay was developing into an equally intelligent human being who, in his adult life, ended up becoming a lawyer. Now, as an attorney, Clay lives his entire life in the middle. He works in mediation, which means his eternal quest is to find common ground between two sides, sometimes very polarizing sides. Uh, he's also an extraordinarily detail-oriented guy who always does a great job in backing up his points. Uh, so putting two and two together, it was really a no-brainer for Justin and I. We knew Clay was the guy we wanted to head up this venture. So rather than me sit here and give you his entire bio, Clay... Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for that introduction, Rob. Uh, I don't know if I agree that I became equally intelligent as my brother. We're going to go higher or lower here. <laughs> I would quibble with some of that, but it doesn't matter. I'm a, I'm a California person now. I'm an East Coast transplant. I grew up in suburbs of D.C. and New York, and uh, I've now been in Southern California for two different stints, totaling 15 years now. As Rob said, uh, I'm a lawyer. I went to a... Uh, a small private conservative Christian school for my undergrad in California, known as Pepperdine. I went to a uh, larger Jesuit Catholic law school in New York called Fordham University. So I am, I am without ideology. Clearly, uh, <laughs> I work as a mediator uh, in a very small practice here in Southern California with uh, perhaps the perhaps the best mediator in the country. A very very decorated member of the legal profession. 
focus on high stakes, complex business litigation. Uh, so, uh, a, a lot of the times, uh, the things we discuss, uh, on this show that you guys discuss on this show are tangentially connected to the work I do, but I'm, I'm not making policy or anything. We're all in the private, uh, so the private sector where I am. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the high level thing about me. The other thing I should let the listeners know, I suppose, is that I'm a much better cook than Rob. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fighting words right there. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to take the bait. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be picking a fight on down yeah. the middle. I'm sorry. <laughs> Clay, why don't you tell us why you're working on this project with us? Well, I suppose I should tell you all a little bit about uh, my my political background, even if basketball does interest me more. I grew up in a uh, much like Jay in a very Republican household. My dad, uh, my mom, way back in the day, uh, but but then my dad for for long after that was very involved in the Republican Party in a number of ways. And uh, even even up through um, the George W. Bush administration, uh, in in various volunteer type capacities, I've always been one to think for myself, as I think both of you can attest. Though, and um, even though I suppose I've been a Republican for most of my life, I was never a card carrying member, so to speak, of any party. In my eligible years, you know, I've, I voted for Bush, I voted for McCain, I voted for Romney, uh, but throughout all that time, I've always been pro choice, always supported gun restrictions. Um, always believed that climate change was real and not whatever it is Republicans think it is. I guess a little more ideologically, um, and to harken back to your all's excellent episode of a few weeks ago, I tend to align more with the Republican view that government is here to protect our inalienable, inalienable rights as opposed to dole out to us what they think we deserve. Uh, and so in that sense, I've, uh, I, I've tended to trend towards republicanism but i'm also complicated let's say I, I i i have different views on a lot of different issues and like many of us and including the people on uh on this podcast i think um donald trump and the rights abdication of all morality and responsibility in the name of pleasing him has caused me to rethink the way i think about a lot of things and so um that's kind of how i arrived to here where i am yeah, I think I think for us, you were a perfect choice because you are very much like Jay and I, where you're sort of a guy who is very politically aware, but sort of feels like you don't have a home yeah. in either of the parties. I think Justin feels like that. I feel like that. Um, and, you know, if, if I could pick somebody who was sort of in between ideologically Justin and I, it'd probably be you because um, you're probably a little bit more socially uh, liberal than Justin is but you might be more, even more ideologically conservative in terms of role of government than either of us. So, you know, the bottom line is that, is that uh, voters are complicated. I mean, I think if you, if you take the premise that, you know, government should stay out of our lives to its extreme conclusion, you end up with some pretty destructive things. You know, like, I don't, like, a refusal to administer any sort of gun policy, for example. That's, that's something that I think, well, you know, we maybe we need a little bit of government here to do that, but at the same time, you know, the... Yeah. The Democrat approach to let's just wave our magic wand and make everything great for everybody without regard to the consequences. I'm also kind of like, well, let's let's pump the brakes on that too. So I, uh, yeah, as, as uh, to and maybe to finally, after several minutes, answer Justin's actual question. Uh, the 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 reason uh, the reason I'm here with you guys and the reason I was so interested in this is as as Rob said, it is my job and my duty to live in the middle and to try to find common ground amongst people who hold very disparate views. 
you know, that that's what trying to settle a case is, is you, you take people who are ready to go to war with each other and you and you try to give them reasons to make peace instead. And in the course of this work, work I didn't think I was going to do, by the way, when I left law school, uh, I just sort of fell into it. You know, you my work as a mediator has taught me a lot about communication, about how to deal with people, about how to talk to people, especially talking to people that you are trying to influence. There's there's a way to do it uh, that is, I think, more effective than others. And um, there's seemingly 535 people in Washington right now that um, that just disagree <laughs> with, with, yeah. with that philosophy. And um, maybe that's the reason you guys had this idea. Maybe it's the reason that these conversations are important. Uh, well, it's all, and it's also the media. Certainly, we never we never let them off the hook on this no, podcast. Certainly not. Certainly not. <laughs> so, uh, moving on, you know, we were planning on having Clay join us for our show on voting and voter fraud uh, because we thought he could lend a legal perspective to the conversation. Uh, but then we switched the subject matter of this episode, obviously, in the wake of the death of, of RBG. Uh, and since we're going to be talking a great deal about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Supreme Court, we still thought it would be a good idea to have Clay here as a student of law and someone who could opine on more of the legal aspects of everything that's going on right now. So without further ado, let's get into our first segment. And that segment is called In Memoriam. It's a new segment. Jay, hit it. There's nothing compared. Nothing compared to you. Uh, we are going to be bringing this segment back, hopefully, as little as possible, reserved for when an extraordinarily influential, high-profile individual passes away. Uh, just like with John Lewis, uh, people who have had a positive impact on the country should be celebrated for their influence and what they accomplished, whether or not you personally agree with their politics or their points of view. So obviously, as you all know uh, by now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, affectionately known as the notorious RBG, passed away last Friday, September 18th, after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Uh, her judicial legacy is that of being a liberal icon. She paid attention to issues that had a great effect on women and actually on lawyers as well. Uh, she was an expert on civil procedure. Uh, before joining the Supreme Court, she had built up quite a legacy during her time as a lawyer. Uh, on the court, she did for women's rights what Thurgood Marshall did for the rights of African Americans. She has a legacy that will surely be secured throughout American history, no matter what you think of her personal politics. So, gentlemen, let's talk a little bit about her life's work generally before we get into some more specifics. Staying general for just a moment, a little bit of a little bit of uh, biography about her. I think that um, she's been at the top of the profession now for so long. She was appointed as a a, a D.C. Um, Circuit Court of Appeals judge, I believe, in eighty one, and then moved up to the Supreme Court in nineteen ninety three, uh, and so has been in a, a judging capacity for. Um, gosh, what is that? longer than i've been alive long time yeah it's easy to forget when you're having when, when there are documentaries made about this woman and, and so many glowing profiles that the experiences that made this woman were were, were pretty tough ones things discrimination that did you know, she wouldn't shouldn't have had to go through clay I'm, I'm i've seen a lot of uh instagram posts that 
speak to, you know, if you have a credit card and a credit card history and you're a woman, that's because of RBG. I mean, and that list goes on and on. I'm hoping we can hear from you how that, you know, how that resonates and what that means specifically, how that actually happened and occurred. I, 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 I want to talk a little bit about um, just from, from the lawyer's perspective, just how, how brilliant she was um, and how, you know, I think oftentimes when you look at historical figures, um, you know, you wonder when, when, when a powder keg is about to burst, um, is the person who finally burst it, was she special or in a different context, he uh, you know, special or, or was it just the time and place? Like this is something that was that was bound to happen. And in the case of of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with respect to the advancement of women's rights in this country, it's not to say that no one else could have done it. It's not to say that the issue wasn't ripe. But she got it so right with the way she conducted her business, the cases that she litigated. It's no surprise that she ended up devoting her career and her life to the advancement of women in the first instance, but also uh, in her time on the bench, the advancement of disenfranchised people. This is a person who, before she went to law school, was working at the Social Security Administration and was demoted upon telling her supervisors that she was pregnant with her first child. She was among the very first classes to uh, to attend Harvard Law School uh, when they were allowing women. I believe it was 1950 was the first mm-hmm. year, and she she enrolled in 1957. Uh, at the time she was at Harvard Law, she was one of nine women in a class of over 500. And I'm sure we can all just imagine uh, the kind of daily strife that that came with. Uh, she ended up transferring to Columbia part of the way through of her uh, law school education. And uh, when she graduated, there wasn't a firm in New York City that would hire her, despite her uh, having been top of her class at both Harvard and at Columbia. And by the way, she did all of this. I believe in her second year, but someone will fact check me if I'm wrong about this. Uh, by her second year, her husband had been diagnosed with cancer and was going through radiation therapy. And so while being in the top 25% at Harvard Law, she was raising a child largely by herself, carrying her sick husband through Harvard Law School by typing his notes for him that his, that his classmates would take. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I can't even I can't even find a way to do my job and, and get a workout in occasionally. So the, the idea that she's raising <laughs> a kid and helping her husband through law school while being uh, better performing than everyone else at Harvard Law is is, is something we should all marvel at. Um, she ends up being a professor right out of law school uh, where she was told on the first day that she would be paid less because she was a woman because she had a husband with an income. And so, hey. Why did she need more money and as much money as the rest of the male professors who were deprived providing their fare for their families? And she was even denied uh, a clerkship on the Supreme Court, despite, of course, being overqualified, because at that time, uh, Supreme Court justices just just weren't all that keen on uh, on on hiring female clerks. So that's that's a formative experience. And everything I just said happened, you know, before she even got into the workforce for the first time, uh, the exception of the, of the professor position that she ended up taking. So, um, if that doesn't form (laughs) a person's worldview on, on the trails that need blazing, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible story that she persevered through all of that. Just think, think about this from the perspective of the firsts or the near firsts. Uh, she co-founded the first law journal focused exclusively on women's rights under the law. She was the first tenured woman as a professor at Columbia Law School. 
She authored the first law school casebook focused exclusively on sex discrimination. She was the co-founder of the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. We could stop right there. I, I, I think we could all just say, what credentials? It's no wonder that so many people uh, were so saddened by her death yeah. and that she meant so much to so many people. That's really just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I, there's really nothing more I could add uh, in a general sense to uh, the overall picture of of the kind of uh, justice she was and lawyer she was and person she was. The only thing I would say in addition to that was to point out that for her to do what she did as a woman is extraordinary. For for her to do what she did as a Jewish woman, yeah, in my opinion, makes it all the more extraordinary. Honestly. You're, you're very, you're very, very right. Yeah, it should not be lost on us that she was a Jewish woman as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is just that extra obstacle she had to yeah. overcome at that point in time in American history. But Clay, uh, give us sort of briefly some of some of her most meaningful decisions, you know, on the Supreme Court um, as an advocate and a judge. So, what I'd really like to focus on here, if it's all right with you guys. Is, uh, is her career as an advocate. And it's important, I think, in this discussion to talk about her as a judge as well. Uh, but what I really, I'm going to spend the bulk of the, my, my discussion on here is her time as an advocate. I don't know that that's something that is quite as well known to the average person who they're used to seeing her in the limelight in the news for writing scathing dissents to, to majority opinions uh, over the last 20 right. years. To me, what defines her and what makes her so remarkable is the fight that she fought when she was at the bottom, as opposed to the fights she kept fighting when she was at the top. We're going to reach way back here and, um, and talk about a couple of cases, uh, that she argued in front of the Supreme Court and also assisted on uh, that, that were argued by others at the Supreme Court. And I, I guess as, as preamble, I just say what's what's so striking about her career as an advocate was this ability to be strategic and reasoned and rational in this very male-dominated field and in a field that was defined by this patriarchal past. So she's having to argue the case for women on a playing field completely established by men and men who didn't likely understand and probably for a time didn't care to understand what it is that she was complaining about. You you see in the arguments she makes and the decisions that she got this incredible balancing act of laying plain injustices of gender discrimination in a very matter-of-fact way, but while also all the while realizing that her just telling her story would not be enough. And she would have to be craftier than that in order to get her requisite attention. The beginning, at least in, in, in my view, of things beginning to change under the law for how this country treated women relative to men was a case called Reed versus Reed. This was a case where the ACLU, I believe, was involved. And RBG wrote... Uh, or co-wrote a brief that went to the court. It was not argued to the court by her, uh, but it was critical to the beginning of all of this because it was the first recognition by the Supreme Court that women are due equal protection under the law in some way. It, they, they left it undefined in this case, uh, but they saw a statute completely defined by, you get this benefit if you're a man, you don't if you're a woman. And I, I believe the case was it was a probate uh, case. It was, it was a child custody dispute or something where, where the, the husband was, uh, under the law, granted more rights than, than was the female. 
uh, and right. the court declined to engage on how it is they should define what protection women are due, but they called a spade a spade and said, yeah, this is clearly not allowed under our constitution and back to the drawing board. And so at this point, you see RBG uh, get more involved, start arguing cases, start bringing cases with the Women's Project at the ACLU, and, um, and, and really start to see the beginning of what, over the next seven or eight, ten years, would, would be a transformation of, uh, of legal precedent with respect to women's rights. Um, so the first case that RBG argued to the Supreme Court uh, had to do with the military denying uh, a woman the same benefit as a man. There was a, a, a woman involved, uh, enrolled in the Air Force, and men were, giving, were given housing allowances and medical benefits for their spouses, but women were not granted the same right. This was, as far as I can tell, the first time in our history that a woman took the platform of the Supreme Court argument to articulate and lay bare just the discriminatory regime that ruled our society with respect to women. And this is very important with respect to strategy, because she might have just gone up there and said, look at this particular case, just as was happened in the Reed versus Reed case. It was, this is a statute that is completely defined by man on one side, woman on one side, you get a certain treatment, you don't. But they didn't do that. Instead, she used the platform of addressing the nine Supreme Court justices of our, of our Supreme Court to just lay out the facts of, look, it's just not the same for us out there. There are sex classifications that affect our daily lives. They cut off our opportunities, just laid bare the inequalities that came with all of this. The brilliant strategy of her in the ACLU at this point was to find statutes that discriminated on the basis of gender, but on its face, the discrimination was against a man. So the Con versus Shevin case, uh, they filed suit seeking to overturn a law that discriminated against a man in order to, it was, it was a tax exemption, I think it was, like extended to widows but not to widowers. She loses this case. It's the only case she lost that, that she argued at the Supreme Court. She loses six to three. But two very interesting things happen in the course of this loss. So one, for the second time, there's a non-majority opinion written arguing that gender, gender discrimination is wrong and must be subject to heightened scrutiny. That's also uh, authored by Justice Brent. It's the continued normalization of this idea that we now take so for granted. But perhaps even more importantly in this case, in losing six to three, she gets a majority opinion joined by the likes of Rehnquist and Berger and, and justices like that. All of you listeners, look these people up. I don't have time to go through every single justice. We'd be here all night. <laughs> but let's just say these are people that uh, didn't often side with RBG. But you know, more importantly, she gets a majority opinion in, in which, in the name of resisting a result in which gender discrimination laws are subject to heightened scrutiny, she goes a six-justice majority into writing an opinion that lays out chapter and verse that life in our society was harder for women, because how else could you justify the statute? Uh, so yeah. the, 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 the widow gets the tax exemption because her man is gone, and life's hard out there for her, and she needs the money. But the mm -hmm. widower doesn't get yeah. that. He's not a woman. He's not suffering right. the same indignities and, and, and strife that she is. And so she's got the Supreme Court stating her argument in a majority opinion. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, say, and in doing so, they, they cite the disparity in median income between 
men and women. This is the majority opinion. Wow. Uh, they they cite women's difficulty in getting work in a quote male dominated culture and entertain the possibility in their analysis that the financial difficulties on women were the result of quote overt discrimination. And so you just see this now. It's brick by brick, case by case. Yeah. The idea of discrimination pervading our society is something that is being just socialized with these people that, that hold so much power. And now, a word from Riz. Okay, everyone. Uh, there's a lot of information in this segment. Uh, Clay is a knowledgeable guy, and he came to talk about case law. So if you are interested in hearing more about this, we are going to post an addendum where, where we will post the entire segment, and uh, you'll get to hear about all the cases Clay cites. Otherwise, stay right where you are, sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the show. And this has been a message from Riz. Well, thank you so much, Clay, for bringing us through that. There's a lot of information there. I hope you guys uh, could absorb that and, and really understand what made uh, RBG such a special and uh, seminal figure. Uh, we're going to switch things up from our usual format today and give you the topic of the day right now. So, Jay, hit us with a theme song. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. Okay, so the topic of the day is the Supreme Court of the United States, also known as SCOTUS. Jay, why don't you give us a little 101 on the Supreme Court for all those listeners who may need a refresher course? Why don't I? The Supreme Court of the United States, as Riz just mentioned, abbreviated as SCOTUS, is the highest court in the federal judiciary or judicial branch of the United States of America. It has ultimate appellate jurisdiction over all federal and state court cases that involve a point of federal law and original jurisdiction over a narrow range of cases, specifically all cases affecting ambassadors, public ministers, and consuls, and those in which the state is a party. The court holds the power of judicial review, which is the ability to invalidate a statute for violating a provision of the Constitution. It's also able to strike down presidential directives for violating either the Constitution or statutory law. However, it may only act within the context of a case in an area of law over which it has jurisdiction. The court may decide cases having political overtones, but it is ruled that it does not have power to decide non-justiciable political questions. The court was established by Article 3 of the Constitution, which establishes the judicial branch of the federal government, empowers the courts to handle cases or controversies arising under federal law, and defines treason. Section 1 of Article 3 vests the judicial power of the United States in the Supreme Court and establishes the separation of powers between the three branches of government. Section 1 also establishes that federal judges do not face term limits and that an individual judge's salary may not be decreased. Article 3 does not set the size of the Supreme Court or establish specific positions on the court, but Article 1 establishes the position of Chief Justice who shall preside over the impeachment trial of the President of the United States. The Constitution provides that judges, quote, shall hold their offices during good behavior, end quote, which is interpreted to mean that judges may serve for the remainder of their lives, although they may resign or retire voluntarily. A judge may also be removed by impeachment and conviction by congressional vote, which has occurred a total of 14 times. What's relevant to note is the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937 was a legislative initiate to add more justices to the Supreme Court. This was proposed by President Franklin D. Roosevelt shortly after his victory in the 1936 presidential election. This bill would have granted the president power to appoint an additional justice to the Supreme Court for every incumbent justice over the age of 70 up to a maximum of six. 
taking the court to a max of 15 justices. This legislative initiative ultimately failed, held up for 165 days in committee by Democratic committee chair Henry F. Ashurst, who's quoted as saying, quote, No haste, no hurry, no waste, no worry. That is the motto of this committee, and that is Supreme Court 101. Wow. Good job, Jay. So let's talk quickly about why the Supreme Court is such an important issue for both the left and the right. Kicking this off, it's evident, especially in our day today, that uh, when things hit the fan, so to speak, they end up there. When the president, the executive, and Congress cannot work things out and cannot come to a conclusion, it's ultimately, or there's a problem with either one, it's ultimately raised to the Supreme Court. And that's happened over and over and over and over again as the aisle has widened, as people cannot come to compromise or come to the negotiating table. We keep kicking these things up to the Supreme Court, and that's why it's become such an important body. And in addition, I'm sure, Rob, you'll, you'll want to mention part of the Republican platform in an election year is always uh, largely about justices. Yeah, absolutely. It has been for a long time. Clay, do you have anything to add about that? Just the obvious point that um, the constitutional issues that that the Supreme Court is responsible for adjudicating, they they really go to fundamental macro issues in our republic. And so by its very structure, the way it's set up, um, the Supreme Court only takes cases that, by definition, are going to affect a lot of people. You know, the, the the Supreme Court doesn't take murder cases. It doesn't take you know burglaries. You know, whatever it is. You know, or, or securities yep. fraud cases, unless it goes to a a particular point of law that needs to interpret a right. statute. You know, it's um, it's it's important to everyone because, as again, RBG's legacy showed us, when your legislatures aren't giving you the rights you feel you deserved, um, you gotta go to court. <laughs> and, and ultimately, yeah. the people who interpret what it is the 14th Amendment need, uh, means, you know, that, that equal protection clause, um, those are the people you gotta go to. And so they're, they're always going to have a very omnipresent role in our society for that reason. Um, assuming some party in the next couple of weeks or months doesn't try to gut them. Um, but That'd be pretty tough. Okay, so while we're still at school here, Jay, why don't you hit us with a good buzz history about some of the court's most landmark decisions and how they shape the future of America? Why don't I? Hello, and welcome to Buzzed History. Today we are highlighting a few of the landmark United States Supreme Court cases. These are not all of them by a long shot, as I know you don't want to be here for hours. But nevertheless, off we go. Up first, we have Marbury versus Madison in 1803, which is perhaps the single most important decision in American constitutional law. In 1801, before incoming President Thomas Jefferson took office, lame duck President John Adams, together with Congress, created new courts and appointed dozens of judges, including William Marbury as Justice of the Peace in the District of Columbia. But the incoming administration's Secretary of State, a man named James Madison, wouldn't validate the appointment, so Marbury sued. The court ruled unanimously that Madison's refusal was illegal and that the law Marbury had sued under was also unconstitutional. This ruling held that the Supreme Court has the power of judicial review to decide whether a law or executive action is constitutional, giving the high court the legal authority for every decision it made from then on out. 
We have McCullough v. Maryland in 1819. The issue at hand in this case was the question as follows. Can Congress establish a national bank? And if so, can a state tax this bank? The court held that Congress had implied powers to establish a national bank under the Necessary and Proper Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The court also determined that the United States laws trump state laws, and consequently a state could not tax the national bank. This created the principles of implied powers and federal supremacy. Then we have Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1857. This case arose from a lawsuit brought by a slave in Missouri named Dred Scott, who had lived for a time in the free state of Illinois. When his master died in 1849, he sued the widow, arguing that his time in the slave-free state made him a free man. The Supreme Court held 7-2 that since Scott's ancestors were imported into the U.S. and sold as slaves, he could therefore not be an American citizen. Since he wasn't a citizen himself, he had no jurisdiction to sue, which also meant that black people living free in the North were barred from federal courts. It was also held by the court that under the Fifth Amendment, slaves were property and any law that deprived a slave owner of their property was unconstitutional. This decision is known to be one of the factors that led to the Civil War. Next up, we have Schenck versus United States in 1919. During World War I, socialist Charles Schenck and Elizabeth Baer distributed leaflets declaring that the draft violated the 13th Amendment prohibition against involuntary servitude. The leaflets urged the public to disobey the draft, but advised only peaceful action. Schenck was charged with conspiracy to violate the Espionage Act of 1917. Both Schenck and Baer were convicted of violating this law and appealed on First Amendment grounds. The court held that in certain circumstances, like the nation being at war, justify limits on the First Amendment. This created the clear and present danger test, meaning that speech could be restricted if it presented a clear and present danger. This was later modified by Brandenburg v. Ohio, which said that speech could be restricted if it would provoke a, quote, imminent lawless action. Next up, we got Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. In the 1950s, Linda Brown had to take a dangerous route to school, as the only school that was close was for white students only. Her father, Oliver Brown, believed that this was a breach of the 14th Amendment, which states, quote, no state can deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Brown, along with a dozen other parents, challenged the segregation policy on behalf of their 20 children. The Supreme Court unanimously held that separate educational facilities were inherently unequal. The second decision called for lower courts and school boards to proceed with desegregation. This decision knocked down the doctrine of, quote, separate but equal from Plessy v. Ferguson, which had allowed mixed-race schools, transportation, and facilities to exist as long as they were equal. This decision, as late as it was, began America's transformation into truly a multiracial world nation. Next up, we have Engel v. Vitali in 1962. In New York State, schools adopted a daily prayer after it was acquired by state law. However, some parents, quickly thereafter, began arguing that this was a violation of individuals' rights. However, the school board argued against this idea, stating that it was not a violation because the students could opt out. Five families, led by parent Stephen Ingle, disagreed and sued on the basis that it violated the religion clause of the First Amendment. The court held six to one that, a read, that reading an official prayer at school violated the Constitution, as it was an establishment of religion. Justice Hugo Black wrote the following for the majority. Quote, it is a matter of history that this very practice of establishing governmentally composed prayers for religious services was one of the reasons which caused many of our early colonists to leave England and seek religious freedom in America. This was obviously a key case showing the enforcement of separation between church and state. 
Next up, we have the New York Times v. Sullivan in 1964. In 1960, an advertisement titled, quote, Heed Their Rising Voices was published in the New York Times. This ad was looking for donations to defend Martin Luther King Jr. and simultaneously criticize the Montgomery Police Department. The ad included factual errors, and L.B. Sullivan, a Montgomery City Commissioner, sued the Times for defamation, even though he wasn't mentioned. In this case, in the Alabama court system, Sullivan won, and the Times was ordered to pay half a million dollars. The paper appealed, and the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The court held unanimously that while regular defamation requires that a defendant knows a statement is false or reckless, when it's a public figure, the defendant must act with actual malice, meaning they must know it was false or have a reckless disregard for the truth. With this decision came the strengthening of the freedom of the press, which has the strongest protections in the world, which ensures that debate on public issues is robust and open. Next up, in 1966, we have Miranda v. Arizona. In 1963, during an interrogation, police obtained a written confession from Ernesto Miranda that said he had kidnapped and raped a woman. However, they had not advised Miranda of his right to have an attorney present during this interrogation. Miranda appealed on the basis that his confession had been gained unconstitutionally. This was a close decision, but the Supreme Court held 5-4 to four that law enforcement must advise suspects of their, say it with me, right to remain silent, their right to an attorney, and that anything they say can and will be used against them in a court of law. Evidence could not be used in a trial unless these warnings had been given and knowingly waived. These are now known as Miranda rights based on this very case. Now, it's important to note, as we get into the 70s, we have a number of important cases dealing with female rights. Uh, As my colleague Clay has covered these cases, I'm going to go ahead and skip over them. Coming up in 1973, we have Roe v. Wade. Here it is, folks. The whole ball of wax, the whole kit and caboodle, the ball game. This case stemmed from a Texas law that said abortion was illegal unless, by doctor's orders, it was to save a woman's life. An anonymous plaintiff called Jane Rowe, who we now know was named Norma McCorvey, filed against the Dallas County District Attorney, arguing that the law was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court held 7-2 that overly restrictive legislation around abortion was unconstitutional. Based on a right to privacy in the 14th Amendment, the state was not allowed to regulate a woman's decision. This created a federal law overruling any state laws that made abortion illegal before a fetus was what the court considered viable. It also created the single issue that some elections are run on, some people vote on, and the country has been on fire about since this ruling came down. The next and last important case we're going to cover is Bush v. Gore in 2000. This case, while some consider to be legally unimportant, had massive political significance. This was a case that settled the dispute recount in Florida during the 2000 presidential election. The decision, which reversed a Florida Supreme Court request for a selective manual recount of the state's U.S. presidential election ballots, held at 5-4 and awarded Florida's 25 electoral votes and therefore the election to Republican candidate George W. Bush. My father was actually involved in this case, and we spoke to him briefly about it. Here's what he had to say. So I was called in because of the relationships to make sure in the politics of Palm Beach County that everybody on the ground and the politicians who I know personally, the Democrats, uh, were playing fairly and that the rulings that the county supervisors would make uh, were not to be partisan. I was asked by uh, the campaign and the president-elect or At that time, it wasn't President Bush, to be the plaintiff in the lawsuit, which was Ned L. Siegel et al. versus Teresa Lepore, uh, which was the case that went to uh, federal district court to discuss the ballots that gave 
President Bush his victory, whether it was to stop the recount that the Democrats were constantly wanting recounts. We wanted to stop the recount. It was, if you go back and look at the law cases and the litigation, it was a seesaw. So that uh, Siegel versus Lepore uh, was one of the first cases that dealt with the Equal Protection Clause because the argument was that every county had different procedures in how they counted the votes and how the actual ballots were presented. There wasn't a statewide qualification where the voters protected and how would the court, the federal courts rule as they looked at uh, how the court was certified at that time by the Secretary of State, Catherine Harris. So I went to the district court and the appellate court. Um, I worked with Ted Olson uh, as the plaintiff. We were in New York at the time. The Supreme Court held that the lower court or the certification of Catherine Harris was valid. And therefore, President Bush won in the Supreme Court ruling. If you go back in history, Vice President Gore accepted the rule of law and conceded the race. So even though you had a very contentious situation politically, it was not venomous. I mean, there were a lot of protests, a lot of pickets, a lot of, you know, activists. But I remember very, very clearly that there was protesting on the Republicans and the Democrats, and we were standing right next to each other and talking and having a dialogue. It was a very, very different atmosphere. And there was a respect for the court system and the law and the rule of law. You had Ted Olson and Larry Tribe. You had the best legal minds arguing in the country at the time. But it was done in a way there was a respect that now, I think that if there were protests in this election, there would be violence if one party wins versus the other. It's unfortunate. Very good buzz history, Jay. I really learned a lot. I say that after after every buzz history. Don't yeah, I? I have. I have noticed you say that. You a mean lot. it, don't you? I really do mean it. That, but I'll tell you, that wasn't my favorite buzz history you ever did. It was. What? It was like my second favorite. That's a first. Let me provide a little contrast just for fun, Jay. Okay. I didn't learn anything. I pretty much knew all of that. Well, Clay, you're the one who told me to do so, those cases, so I'm not that sure. Yeah, well, well you, just, yeah. you just gave away the game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so getting back to the serious stuff, uh, let me ask a question to you guys. Did the founders intend for the court to hold as much weight as it currently does? Clay, what's your take on that? So I, I understand the, the reason for the question. I think that, however, it's not actually some, um, I don't think there's some dramatic change that has happened um, in the 20th century and beyond giving the court more power or less power relative to what was intended. Uh, indeed, the, the first case that uh, Jay uh, read through in his buzz history was Marbury versus Madison, which, as he indicated, established the doctrine of judicial review for constitutional issues. And so from the outset in 1803, this issue was put to a head and it was decided, yes, indeed, uh, the, the role of the Supreme Court is, and the Article all Article three courts, but the highest court being the Supreme Court, that they were going to be there to check uh, overstepping legislators. So I think that it can seem sometimes, certainly from a headline perspective, that the Supreme Court is deciding these 
major issues all the time Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and those coincide with what maybe are the big political issues of the day but really that's just a result of uh the lawmakers uh and at the state and the federal level and their constituents pushing the envelope on hot button issues you know both the right and the left on both the right and the left but like just to just to take an issue that's just maybe the most hot button you know um whether it's texas or alabama or oklahoma they are constantly writing these you know anti-abortion laws that are designed to get scotus review but they want to just keep making the court say it until maybe they'll say something different and so that that's not that's not scotus giving itself power i mean (laughs) that's that's just the natural order of things now you know alexander hamilton famously called the court the least dangerous branch of government now hamilton had a point when he said this because the court could not make laws is that the guy who sang I was, yeah, gonna, I was just gonna exactly. say you're not gonna sing his name come on Riz. i'm not gonna the... sing his name no alexander hamilton my name is alexander hamilton but that's the guy no. that's the guy with the with the yes. song and the dance yes. and the king yeah. and, the... and the weird hair and everything yeah, yeah. okay yeah. Yeah. Right. now uh, <laughs> i get my founders confused right. <laughs> his point was that the court could not make laws it did not have taxation power and it couldn't go to war its only job was to judge whether or not a law was constitutional. Now, Democrats have been accused literally for 100 years of treating the court as a legislative body. What do you guys think about that accusation? It's fine if people want to accuse the Democrats of trying to use that, uh, use that branch of government as a substitute lawmaker to get what they want. But a couple of things there. One, however strongly you, whether you feel about this is a good idea or a bad idea, I think that when SCOTUS is held up as a lawmaking body by Democrats or Republicans, it's because they're not getting what they want from the legislature. Sure, of course. They, they're looking elsewhere. Well, and especially in the last, um, the last eight years, or I guess mm-hmm. even Obama's first term, less so, but maybe after the 2010 midterms. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Congress has been useless. They, yep. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get anything done. Everyone's just out to, to outdo one another. And so it makes sense to me, the natural... The, the natural progression of that would be for state legislatures that are more controlled by one house or the other, one party or the other, trying to get things done any way they can, like we just spoke about with, with legislation that's almost designed to get up to the Supreme Court. Is that a problem that it's not designed that way? Or is that the way it's designed? That when, you know, Congress starts acting like children, that the Supreme Court can then, you know, act as such? Put that way, I would revise my answer slightly to the previous question. I don't think that the founders envisioned the kind of abject polarization and bad sure. faith that yeah. has marked our Congress. Again, I'll, I'll just say the last 10 years. I think it's, I just think it's undeniable. I don't think SCOTUS was thought to be at the time that was going to have to be the adult in the room, but mm-hmm. certainly that's the way the um, Constitution sets it up. Um, I don't know if you have any input on this, Clay, or insight, but why, for example, why are there no term limits on the judges? Yeah, I think that's a that's a question a lot of people would have. Uh, I don't have any particular insight into that from from reading the texts, uh, either the legislative histories themselves. I think I read the Federalist Papers, I think, you know, 20 years ago, which I'm, I'm probably not going to do that again, just to be honest with all of you. Fair. It's a um, slow read. It's a very yeah. slow it's a, read. It's a very slow read, although I'm a Hamilton fan. Moving from, you know, what I was talking about with term limits, some of the precedent that has been set since the 1800s, like the number of justices, why are we talking about this stuff now? There have been precedents set for so long. What's kept us from moving that into law? So to, to go back to your previous question first, I'd say that, you know, the, the, the reason for term limits is I think that 
the decision, I mean, the reason for not having term limits, the reason for a lifetime appointment, is that, um, as we've been discussing, this is the highest court in the land. They're going to make very important decisions. We know this. And while we're more polarized now than perhaps we always have been, the Supreme Court has been politically charged since time eternal. Uh, And people may not realize that, but it's it's, it's the truth. I can even point to some specific examples if you're interested. Um, But I think that the idea of the lifetime appointment is that you don't have to worry about, I'm the deciding vote. Um, Pick a party. Let's say the Republicans control both the House and the Senate. There's this huge case coming up. I feel like I would vote the way the Democrats would want me to. But if I do that, are these guys going to toss me out of office and and find a way to reelect me because they don't like what I did? And so right there, you're motivated motivated by something other than what you think is the right result. I think the reason that we don't have, uh, haven't put in term limits or haven't put in setting the uh, set number of seats or whatever it is, is that um, the Constitution doesn't even flat out say it's a lifetime appointment. It's been interpreted to say yeah, that. That's and true. Uh, it does not set the number of seats, which, as to my understanding, would mean that if you wanted to put in a set number of seats or, uh, or set term limits, it would have to be a constitutional amendment, which that's true. will require you know, 75% of the bodies and, you know, X percent of the states to, to right. go along with it. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a whole big mess. And, you know, maybe once you guys get to episode 117, you can talk all about, <laughs> yeah. you know, how hard it is to amend the constitution. Uh, yeah. But it's just, it's just a tough thing to accomplish. Um, Got it. So that would be my guess. Okay. So a bunch of episodes ago, we premiered a new segment. This You have to be a super fan because this was a while ago. Uh, and it was called Partisanship, a Hell of a Drug. And we created this, uh, this segment to highlight moments where both sides of the political aisle are addicted to partisanship like a Los Angeles vagrant is addicted to crack cocaine. We're bringing it back this week. Partisanship, a hell of a drug. Go. Partisanship. That's a hell of a drug. Welcome back to Partisanship, a hell of a drug. So first, we should get into a little bit of the Merrick Garland debacle. So in 2016, the last year of Barack Obama's term, far-right judge Antonin Scalia, who we were just talking about, suddenly passed away. On March 16th, 2016, President Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland to serve as an associate justice of the Supreme Court and to fill the vacancy created by the death of Antonin Scalia. The Senate Republican majority refused to hold a hearing or vote on this nomination made during the last year of Obama's presidency, with the Republican majority insisting that the next elected president should fill the vacancy instead. Senate Republicans' unprecedented refusal to consider the nomination was considered highly controversial back then, and it is still considered controversial today. Garland's nomination lasted 293 days and expired officially on January 3, 2017, at the end of the 114th Congress. The seat Garland was nominated for was eventually filled by perhaps one of the most conservative justices in American history, Neil Gorsuch, who was, of course, appointed by Donald J. Trump. So now we have a crisis of precedence here. The Democrats are screaming, You guys changed the rules last time and said we can't fill a vacant seat on the court during an election year. And now you're going back on that. 
Republicans are saying, yeah, but the game is different this time because we have the Senate. Republicans are also pointing out that the Democrats had no problem filling the seat during election year when Obama was president. So let's play you guys a few clips to give you some uh, a little bit of background here. Clip one was put together by a Democratic activist group to point out the hypocrisy of the Republicans by using their own words against them. In this clip, you will hear various members of the GOP back in 2016 saying that the American people should decide who fills the next Supreme Court vacancy. Goes something like this. Next president, whoever that may be, is going to be the person who chooses the next Supreme Court justice. I believe the next Supreme Court justice ought to be chosen by the American people through the election of the next president. This is about principle, not the person the president has nominated. And it's why the majority of the Senate has chosen to use this unique situation as an opportunity to let the American people have a voice. And the only way to empower the American people and ensure they have that voice is for the next president to fill the nomination to the, created by this vacancy. The confirmation of a lifetime appoint, appointee to our nation's highest court is far too important to become entangled in the partisan wrangling during a presidential election year. There is a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. And, and what this means, Chuck, is we ought to make the 2016 election a referendum on the Supreme Court. The American people need a chance to weigh in on this issue, on who will fill that seat. They'll have that chance this November, and they ought to have that chance. The people deserve to be heard, and they should be allowed to decide through their vote for the next president the type of person that should be on the Supreme Court. You can't have one rule for Democrat presidents and another rule for Republican presidents. If an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. And I've got a pretty good chance of being the judiciary. You're on the record. Yeah. All right. Hold the tape. One little extra addendum to that clip is Lindsey Graham blatantly saying that we have the permission to use his words against him uh, if the exact situation that is happening currently ends up happening. And this is a very short clip, but it was so good, I just had to throw it in there. Lindsey Graham, do it, sister. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination and you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. So now here is a clip put together by a conservative activist group using the Democrats words from 2016 against them. Go. The American people deserve a fully staffed court of nine. The president nominates and then the Senate advises and consents or not, but they go forward with the process. What we're seeing here, and I hope this is temporary, is a disrespect for the Constitution. The Constitution is 100% clear. The President of the United States has the right to nominate someone to be a Justice of the Supreme Court. Senate's function is to hold hearings and to vote. The blockade on filling a naturally occurring vacancy, in my view, is harmful to the independence of the Article Three branch. You cannot keep a seat on the Supreme Court, which represents all of us. You cannot keep it vacant against the Constitution. Do pretty much everything they can to avoid acknowledging the legitimacy of our democratically elected president. The American people expect the president's nominee to be given a fair hearing 
and a timely vote in the Senate. Every day that goes by without a ninth justice is another day the American people's business is not getting done. I say to you, do your job. Vote for a Supreme Court nominee. Instead of just saying the blanket rule is no matter who you are, no matter what your qualifications, because you were sent by this president, we will create a unique rule for you and refuse to entertain you. One of the most important um, consequences of who is president of the United States is who sits on the United States Supreme Court. If you want to stop extremism in your party, you can start by showing the American people that you respect the President of the United States and the Constitution. The American people deserve a fully staffed court of nine. Now, Clay, before we get all heated and get into anything else, talk a little bit first. Me? Just to give heated? Our, yeah, <laughs> just to give our audience a little background, talk a little bit about advising consent. Uh, so, uh, as I alluded to earlier, the advising consent thing has largely been politicized from the outset the original time i believe was the year 1795 that was the first time that the advising consent process was used to outright deny a nomination uh it was john rutledge he had been an associate supreme court justice i believe and this was uh, for his ascension to be the the chief justice of the court it was entirely because he had previously opposed a particular treaty that a bunch of people with influence supported. And so when it came time, they said, nope, not doing this, because we don't like the position he took. And so he ended up actually retiring from public service after that. You can see just tons and tons and tons of examples of this throughout history. But advise and consent is not really defined like so many things in the Constitution. It has been interpreted to mean, uh, again, a measure to keep the executive in check, make sure he doesn't or she uh, doesn't do something completely crazy with an unqualified nominee, but it would be it would be wrong to infer uh, from the outrage that you see on both sides these days about questions being asked of certain nominees or whatever it is to think that politicization of it started only in the last 10, 20 years or something. It's been it's been going on forever. Uh, but the advise and consent process is just a vetting. Uh, typically, uh, the there's intense background checks. Takes a couple of months usually which won't be happening this time, obviously. The nominee typically sits for questioning. Right. Uh, again, you all know what I'm talking about there. Uh, over a thousand hours of questioning for, uh, yeah. for, for Mr. Kavanaugh. I mean, excuse me, over a thousand questions asked for, uh, for Mr. Kavanaugh, for Judge Kavanaugh, yeah. uh, just a few years back. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, that's the advise and consent 101. It's the Senate keeping the executive in check, and um, sorry to burst everyone's bubble, but it's always been political. So is there any basis or merit at all for what Republicans are doing here? I'm so glad that you asked me that, Here Rob. we go. Okay, here we go. I'm Let's so get glad you asked me, okay? Go ahead, Clay. Let, it, so, let, it, let them have it. Let her rip. I'm gonna, I'm, I was going to say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the mic uh, and I'm going to wreck it, as they say. So the short answer is no. There is no merit to any of this. There's no merit to any of this, and it is it is the work of a of a dirty, cynical politician who is hell bent on destroying our republic, just you know, so that his family will say really amazing things about him at his funeral. Uh, and you're talking about the turtle. I am talking about the turtle, the turtle himself, so, Mitch so McConnell. Tell us why this has you so uh, in a tizzy, and and the country in a tizzy. Um, explain to us exactly how the precedent set 
in 2016, right, constitutes a precedent and a rule. Well, it doesn't. That's the problem. Okay. If it did, I wouldn't be so mad. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the issue, the issue is, is that Mitch McConnell took it upon himself to, I mean, I would just call it a loophole in our constitutional system. Mm -hmm. um, to transfer a power vested in a certain executive and say, actually, we are going to decide unilaterally um, that this power shall be vested in a different executive, one that we like better. And, and, and it's as simple as that. Um, but let me, let, me walk through, let me walk through some history, because I imagine listeners have been listening, or some of our listeners might have been listening to people like Ted Cruz or Mitch McConnell, you know, to talk about precedent. And uh, in fact, I think one of the clips you just played, uh, Rob, opened up with Ted Cruz and his 80-year remark, longstanding precedent. It's just false. And so I think it's important to walk through some detail, and then we can get to why this has me so hot and, uh, and what it means for the future. But let's... Um, Stick, stick with me on this, though, because this is important stuff. Stick with me here. So I'm going to define, uh, define a few terms here first, because I, we've got to understand what we're talking about, okay? okay. So there, there are elected presidents. These are people who win the Electoral College and are elected president. That is distinct from a unelected successor president. Yeah. Now, um, Richard Nixon, for example, was elected president. He then resigned in the middle of his second term. Uh, due to the Watergate scandal, he was replaced by his VP, Gerald Ford, according to the 20th Amendment, um, or excuse me, 25th Amendment, um, and uh, then Gerald Ford was president. Gerald Ford was not elected president. He was a successor president to the resigning president. Right. Gerald Ford never won an election. This is important for what we're going to talk about. Um, so I think most people probably understand this point, but also... There are thing there. There's a few month period between the election and the inauguration, the post election period. Call this a lame duck Congress when it changes hands, you know, or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but we, as you all know, have our elections the first week of November. Um, we have our inauguration uh, in mid January. Used to be uh, back in March, but that was changed uh, in 1937 following the passage of the 20th Amendment. Uh, so now March, now up into January. Um, so. Lastly, and this is also very important, uh, the last part of the preamble here, um, you've probably heard a lot of angry Democrats in the news recently talking about how nothing in the Constitution allows what Mitch McConnell did. That is true, but it is also not dispositive, because custom and practice in the form of unofficial rules or norms, whatever you want to say, are an important and indeed accepted part of congressional procedure. And that is particularly so when, uh, when courts are interpreting the balance of power and the duties uh, as between the executive and Congress. So it's not enough to just say, well, the, nothing in Constitution allows them to do that. If there is a long tradition of such things, then that is something that our, our legal system has expressly cited to and recognized. So with all of that said, the stunt that McConnell pulled in 2016 was completely unprecedented, <laughs> completely without basis. And as I said, it was a dirty political move in which he deliberately transferred the powers of a sitting president to that of his successor. So, Clay, can you speak specifically to Mitch McConnell's uh, information that he put out in a press release where he said there's been 15 times the Supreme Court vacancy has opened in a presidential election year and that the president nominated someone that same year? Eight of those times, he says the White House and Senate were controlled by the same party and seven of the nominees were confirmed and the other seven nominations, the White House and Senate were different parties and only two nominees were confirmed. Can you explain 
how that is right or wrong and how that uh, speaks to what's going on now? So I can't speak specifically to that analysis because I don't know the 15 that he's trying to cite and um, where he's getting this notion that Article 2 powers don't apply if the opposing party uh, controls the Senate. As I said, whatever it is Mitch McConnell did, it's something he created. We know it's not in the Constitution. The question is whether or not he's got some norm tradition basis for it. Now, he's cooking the books in a certain way to say, like, oh, well, in these times it didn't actually happen. I don't have the list in front of me of his 15. If I did, I'm confident that I could refute every one of them. But I'm not really interested in the sort of cherry-picked analysis unless he's going to come out and say, each time this is why it didn't happen, this is why it didn't happen. That is something that I am prepared to do, at least in the way that I have organized the data. Hopefully that's not too unsatisfying an answer. But let's, let's proceed as we do uh, through, through at least the, the various histories as the way I've analyzed them. Okay, okay. So when Scalia died in 2016, it was the 104th time that an elected president had a vacancy arise on the Supreme Court during his tenure. Now, elected president, that's important. That's why we had the preamble. The 104th time that an elected president had a vacancy arise on the Supreme Court during his tenure. In those 103 previous times, would either of you like to guess how many times the president was unable to nominate and confirm a new justice, despite picking one, before the November election? Exactly zero times Mm. in the situation that we had with Obama and Garland uh, what was a president unable to get a nominee confirmed? Wasn't always yeah. his first choice, mind you. Yeah. But he was able to get a nominee confirmed. So, stated differently, elected presidents before Barack Obama in 2016 were 103 for 103 yeah. in working with the Senate to fulfill their constitutional duty and power. So, right there, McConnell did something that has literally never been done before. And as we're going to see, there are so many ways in which this was something was done that has never been done before. So you're talking about generally, not necessarily in an election year. Anytime, whether it was generally or yeah. in an election yeah. year. Or right. in an election year. It includes right. election years and it includes yeah. non-election years. And it has happened in election year. Yeah, my criteria is elected president as opposed to successor unelected president, which I think we all know what Barack Obama was, even if it drives Mitch McConnell crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking about when a nominee was selected and announced prior to a november election in the event that it was an election year right which again also fits mm-hmm. scalia dies february merrick garland is nominated in march election is in november so you're wondering um well hasn't the senate blocked nominees before well yes yes they have there are six times in history in as i as i've described it in which the Senate has failed to confirm a sitting president's nominee. Is there a norm here to identify that McConnell simply invoked? No, I don't think so. Because each of these occasions involve legitimate questions about either the status of the nominating president, or they were made at a point in time where it made sense to perhaps question the legitimacy of that president because he was an outgoing uh, president after an election. So, let's start with the first category. Three times in history that it has happened where um, a nominee was made by an unelected successor president. 
That was our 10th president, John Tyler, after Harrison died, our 13th president, Millard Fillmore, after Zachary Taylor died, and our 17th president, Andrew Johnson, after Abraham Lincoln died. Now, in all of these cases, actually, I should say, in Tyler and Fillmore's case, they had two vacancies in the year in which they were up for election. The Senate in both instances, Tyler and Fillmore, confirmed one of the nominees, but then refused to take up the other. In Johnson's case, actually, his nominee was picked at a time when Congress was considering legislation that would reorganize the court and eliminate the vacant seat, which ultimately happened, and therefore it rendered the appointment moot. So, in these three cases that I'm talking about, some of the nominees of the quote-unquote election year president um, were actually confirmed. Again, with Tyler and Fillmore, they had two vacancies to fill. The Senate said okay on one, and on the other one said, no thanks, we're not going to take that up. Now, why did they not take that up? couple of reasons. One, you're talking about an unelected president. And, more importantly, all of these instances that I just referenced occurred prior to the passage of the 25th Amendment, which, among other things, clarified that when the president dies, is removed or resigns, his vice president, or her vice president, actually becomes the president and acquires all powers given in Article 2, as opposed to just being an acting president who's just a bridge to the next guy without such powers. Uh, so at the time all of this happened, there was actually a legitimate question as to whether or not these presidents even had the authority to appoint replacement justices. And so I think we can all agree none of the earmarks, none of the circumstances uh, that I'm talking about in any of these cases so far apply to the twice-elected Barack Obama who nominated someone in an election year, well prior to the election in November. And in any event, it is also worth noting there were also six other occasions before the 25th Amendment was passed in which the Senate went ahead and confirmed the nominee of an unelected successor president. So again, this is hardly an established norm. This is hardly some tradition. If it was a tradition, exceptions were made all the flipping time. And again, like I said, none of these circumstances apply to the situation we're talking about here with Obama and Garland. Right. Now, I said earlier that there were six times that a president didn't get his nominee confirmed. The other three were all appointments made by a president after a November election in which the sitting president had lost and would soon be replaced. Again, not analogous here. We can understand if Scalia had died in December and Obama suddenly rushes to try and get someone in, they would have, I think, rightly said, mm, the people have spoken. Yeah, so it's never happened in a, in a lame duck session. It has never happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's not yeah. that it's, it's never happened. I think it, it has yeah. happened. All I, okay. what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is that... Um, there's more basis in these, for in these it, three yeah. instances. It doesn't really matter, does it? Because it's not right. what happened with Barack Obama and Eric Garland. Yeah. It's not yeah. an analogous situation. There's nothing to say. So another thing that really galls me about all this, in case you were curious, if you recall, McConnell didn't say, you know, um, this is a democracy. We're accountable to the people. We've got CNBC that puts all this stuff on TV. I am man of the people. I'm going to go ahead and put these televised hearings with Merrick Garland where he's going to come in and answer questions and he's going to get a full and fair shake from the Senate. The reason he didn't do this, of course, is because the guy was a centrist, plainly qualified, and we have the whole Orrin Hatch thing where Orrin Hatch was like, gosh, if only Barack Obama would nominate a guy like Merrick Garland. I mean, talk about foot and mouth right. disease four I years know, right? later. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he said so that course, four years before. Yeah. So, yeah. of course, yeah. Mitch McConnell wasn't going to do that because this entire thing is in bad faith. So in case you're wondering, the failure to even let the Senate debate a nominee's worthiness has happened. I mean, so it's a, the, the, the denominator in this fraction is 160. You guys want to guess what the numerator is? Zero. No, it's not zero. I tricked you. It's 12. 
12 times out of 160, a nominee's worthiness has failed to even be put to the debate floor for the people to vet. Mm -hmm. Three times, the nominee uh, was named when Congress was either in recess or it was right at the tail end of a congressional session, in which case time was just a difficult factor. And actually, in all three of those occasions, the same president ended up making an alternative pick and getting that nominee through. Although in one of those instances, the original pick was rejected outright. The Senate did say no to that guy, but you can look it up if you want the details. There was intense, intense politics going on with that particular individual. Um, but okay. again, the president uh, at the time ended up getting a different nominee through. Just because Mr. William Hornblower was denied doesn't mean that that president was completely unable to, to get a nominee through. Uh, so that was those three. Again, three of 12. The other six times... Uh, another six times, the president withdrew the nominee for whatever reason. And then there were three times, as discussed above, where the nominee was made after an election that the sitting president had lost. And so it just wasn't given credence. So only once in history, one flipping time in history, was a nominee, and his name is Merrick Garland, denied the deliberation of his candidacy simply because the majority leader of the Senate had decided we don't want this president to get to pick his Supreme Court justice, and we will instead vest that constitutional power in somebody else. Why? Because we flipping can. It's the only flipping reason. Because (laughs) we can. So here we are. Ted Cruz loves to say, quoting the Washington Post here, we have 80 years of precedent of not confirming Supreme Court justices in an election year. So he can say that, like so much of the stuff he says, it's complete nonsense. And Facile. So, do you want to know how many justices were up for confirmation in an election year in the past 80 years? Rob, what's my answer? Zero. Zero. (laughs) The reason we haven't done it in 80 years is because the occasion has not come up. Right. Okay? So, that's not precedent. It's chance. It's cherry-picking. If you took this back 120 years to beginning of the 20th century, then you would see that there have actually been four instances of vacancies arising in an election year. And all four flipping times, the Senate did their job and confirmed the nominee. And again, Jay, as I said, I cannot speak to all 15 of whatever likely bad faith and false list Mitch McConnell has claimed to compile. You, You see here the reason this is so irritating. And the reason why the current fight that is playing out in the public forum is so irritating is even in the clips you just played, there's this effort to kind of both sides of this whole thing. This idea of like, oh, look at these hypocrite Democrats. Now, all of a sudden, they're totally fine with this whole thing happening. Well, do you want to know why? Do you want to know why? It's because one man, one man in the history of this country had the gall to look at the piece of paper and say, oh, Guys, I don't have to take this. I don't have to put it to the Senate. I can right. just say no. I can right. just say no. Just like and you knew, he could just say pick. yes now. Yeah. And they don't get the pick. Oh my yeah. gosh, why didn't I think of this before? Like, yeah. if you think that is the way a republic functions, then you're an <laughs> Like, it's cheating. It's just plain and simple cheating. And by the way, before some listener tries to tell me about Abe Fortas in 1968, you need to check your facts. It's completely not analogous. Abe Fortas was already on the Supreme Court. Johnson proposed to have him elevated to chief justice, picked a nominee to replace him as an associate justice. But even Fortas got four days of debate before the Senate, during which time he was ripped apart, rightfully so, 
by Republican Congress uh, and exposed for being a total Johnson crony who had some improper contacts with the president, even while he was an associate justice. Lyndon Johnson ended up pulling back the nomination and failing to name another replacement for the associate that position he would have vacated, really just to save face. So this just bears no resemblance to Obama picking Garland in March of an election year and, and McConnell refusing to even call the question of his nomination before the Senate body. So when you understand these facts, when you understand that this is literally just a political maneuver and nothing more, I just I look at the public debate coming on right now and it just enrages me. It's like, so one side cheated, and then four years later, someone's like, oh, well, you cheated, so I guess that's the new rule. And they're like, oh, no, 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 that only works for us. Sorry, that only works for us. That's kind of a one-way thing. Oh, gosh, you really should have taken the Senate in 2018. Sorry, guys. That doesn't mean, Jay, that, and we're going to get to this in a bit before I let you do your thing, but that does not mean that the Democrats aren't acting stupidly as well. Of course. But we'll get to it. That's a whole, yeah. that's a whole other topic. Of so course. say what you're going to say first. No, this is, this is the one time where they're righteously indignant and they're correct about it. I have two questions for Clay here, and I'm going to ask them at the same time. So your, your problem is clearly more with what happened in 2016 in context to what is happening now. If Merrick Garland got a hearing but wasn't confirmed, would you have the same problem you're having now? And do you think that we should make what McConnell did precedent? And if so, why? Since it was clearly so wrong when he did it. So, no, we're going to answer the second question first. No. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. No, we shouldn't. It's cheating. <laughs> it's, it's rewriting the Constitution in a way that suits you. The president gets to be president for all four years. Yeah. Right. So you believe that this, that whatever nominee the president puts forward should get uh, a confirmation hearing? Yeah, let me, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll go back. I'll answer your first question first. Yeah, if Merrick Garland uh, had been given a fair shake, and by the way, I would not view his being his, his nomination to candidacy being vetted by the Senate and then voted down on partisan lines is getting his, his due because okay. Orrin yeah. Flipping Hatch said that the guy was perfect. We all know yeah. it. Yeah. It would be a blatant act of partisanship that wouldn't be quite as brazen. It would be within the mm -hmm. rules, but it would still irritate me. But okay. no, if Merrick Garland was sitting on the Supreme Court right now, well, then, of course, I'd be saying that, uh, that they should be uh, that they should be picking someone and, and trying to get it through. My question was, if he got a hearing, a fair shake, but wasn't confirmed. Would that make you feel better? Yeah. It wouldn't make me feel much better only because Mitch McConnell has proven himself to be just, I mean, I don't call him Voldemort lightly, you know? I mean, he's the <laughs> only one who gets that. Like, I think, okay. it, I would think it would have been seen rightly as a naked political stunt, and I really would have loved the exchange of, well, gosh, you know, Mr. Hatch, four years ago, you said Merrick Garland would have been the perfect Supreme Court justice. What f changed for you? Right. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. And then my second question, since what Mitch McConnell did in 2016 is clearly very wrong, do you think that that should become precedent? Should this Supreme Court nominee get a hearing and possible confirmation? Uh, no, I don't. I don't because turnabout's fair play. I agree. The consequences are too great. So because Mitch McConnell did something wrong, you then think that the democrats have the ability to turn around and i mean you claim it was unconstitutional you then think that the no, democrats no, I, do... no, I, I premise no i have to quibble with the premise of your question it's not a matter of they have the ability they don't have the ability to do anything that's the right. point is that the guy read a requirement into the constitution wasn't there so, that wasn't there solely because there was a loophole that he could exploit i understand what you're saying the democrats yeah. can't do anything about it 
What I'm saying, and this is the point of the whole thing, is that we have one party that is acting in good faith currently. What he is saying is that if you are so concerned with things being unconstitutional and things being wrong, and two wrongs don't make a right, shouldn't you want the Democrats to push this nominee through in the name of doing what's right, being the party that does what's right? Being the adult in the room. Yeah, I'm not misunderstanding the question at all. Okay. I'm okay. understanding the question perfectly. Okay. Right. I think you're contradicting yourself. You're no, you're asking you're asking me <laughs> if you're asking me if that in a situation where there are nine people, currently anyway, and I'm assuming we'll talk about that, there are nine people currently who have an extraordinary amount of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're suggesting that the Democrats, after being completely railroaded. <laughs> in a bad faith way, in an unconstitutional way, should take the moral high ground just to show what good people they are and lose another 40 years on the Supreme Court? It's not just to show what good people they are. It's to show that we have a constitution. It's it's, right. it's everything you've talked about on the show so far. It's to Let show that we have in, a constitution. Then. Please do, Riz. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is, and I've made this point many, many, many times on this show now, the Democrats always have to be sticklers to the rules, you yeah. know, because that because we all know that Republicans get away with this kind of stuff. I've, said, I've made this point a ton of times now. Uh, so the Democrats have to be the rule, the people who follow the books. And that's why I get so upset when the Democrats break the rules, especially their own rules. Because it's like, you people have to be the rule people. And I hate the excuse that liberals will then give, which is, well, well they the did Republicans do that too. Yeah, be, be, uh, be the however, adults in the room. Yeah, right. However, in this case, it would be so Democrat if they just let it go. Because this was a really, really big deal. And there has to be some kind of retaliation against Mitch McConnell for doing what he did to Merrick Garland. And the only tool that the Democrats have to retaliate is to not simply, or at least put up a fight when it comes to whoever Trump's nominee is going to be. This is the point, Riz, is that there's nothing they can do. They have no card to play. They have no card to play. We're relying on, I'm not saying that the Democrats like, well, why should they be opposing it? Whether they oppose it or not, that's not the point. That question doesn't matter. The point is that, We have a situation where a party acted in bad faith, and now here we are four years later, they hold all the cards again. And the question is not, Democrats, shouldn't you be okay with this? The question is, Republicans, will you practice what you preach and act in good faith now that you, four years later, after you acted in bad faith? Obviously, McConnell has answered that question with a resounding no. So it doesn't matter what the Democrats think about it. Right. It really doesn't matter. You're you're right. And Jay, remember that everything that happens in government sets a, a precedence. So well, that's what I was when asking. Mitch McConnell did that, he set a precedence that then has to be followed, even if it was completely unconstitutional or unprecedented. But but I phrase it differently. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it should be a precedent that we follow from here on out. I am yeah. asking for Mitch McConnell to that's not what say, say a prayer or and, and I think he's wrong. I'm asking for <laughs> McConnell to go to church a little bit. I'm asking him to actually read the Bible and understand it and apply its practices and stop being such a I'm asking him to this one time say, really sorry for that time that I turned into the spawn of Satan. That was a mistake. I'm completely with our republic. I think I'm going to now go back to only moderately being an that isn't trying to completely blow Stop up our system. Stop making me use the censor button over I'm sorry. and over again. Sorry, sorry. But I'm saying, so I don't think, I don't think we should look at this and say, 
And by the way, I understand that some of the Democrats are probably using this language and they're and they're wrong to do it. I don't think they should be come out and saying, well, it's the new precedent now. OK, well, then would the apology be enough for you if you don't want to set a precedent? That would mean he he would not be doing the same thing he did last time. Oh, so when you say apology, you mean an apology and he waits for the election. I'm saying if you don't want a precedent set, you're saying right now, I don't want this to set a precedent, meaning you just want him to do what he did last time so that it's like we're square and even. Doing it two times would set more of a precedent than just doing it once. No, I understand. I would I would rather wave my magic wand and go back and have someone not Can't try to break our democracy in a bad yeah. faith way. Not an option so, yeah. here. So no, if he came up if he came up and said, I'm really sorry about this, I don't want it to be a precedent, then that apology is completely empty and meaningless unless he also says, and by the way, just this once, I think we should agree that I screwed you guys that one time, and so I'm going to make amends this time. But doesn't right. that set a precedent? Isn't that dangerous ground? It's a lot less dangerous ground than what's about to happen. Let's move on because we could sit here and talk about this forever. So conservative commentator Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire sent out a very honest tweet the other day that went something like this, quote, to be clear, I wanted McConnell to refuse to hold a hearing for Garland because I didn't want Garland on the court. I want the hearings now because I do want Trump's pick on the court. That's the way the game is played, you dumb whiners. It's not hypocrisy, it's just politics. And this is the right response. Stop trying to justify it on any other basis. We didn't want Obama's pick and Republicans had the power to prevent it, so we wanted that power to be used. There's no shame in that. Stop being scared of playing the cards you're holding. What do you guys think of that, Clay? If this is just politics and it's something we're all supposed to just accept, then this is not the greatest country in the world. I agree, that's exactly what I would say, Jay. And this is the this is the big Christian conservative. Yeah, we by depose the way, we yeah. depose dictators for rigging their political systems in a way that we, the virtuous Americans, believe is not democratic. So if the answer to this complete usurping of power and rewriting of the transfers of power and the allocation of power in the Constitution is everyone I'm putting up air quotes, just politics, then then the Republicans have to stop saying that this is the greatest country in the world because it is starting to look a lot like the banana republics that we've deposed dictators out of. It is, it is a bad, it is a bad way to go. If this truly is the only time that this has ever happened in the history of our country, then that sets a very dangerous precedent. If what Clay is saying is, is accurate, and I'm guessing that it is because the man does his homework. So yes, th that's not politics as usual. However, I obviously disagree with what the remedy is because I don't believe that doing it a second time justifies the, the issue with the first time. I think that there are other things you could do with Mitch McConnell that don't have to do with upending our system further by creating what is, you've already admitted, to be a very dangerous precedent. But it's not, see, it's not a precedent when it's not done for partisan reasons. Right. In 2016, it was done as in an affirmative partisan act. The son of a told a crowd of supporters the proudest moment of my life was when i looked president obama in the eye and told him he wasn't going to get to do it it was an aggressive offensive act not offensive offensive act of partisan politics this would be a conciliatory act of nonpartisan politics two completely different things this is more about the offender than anything else than than, than precedent for me okay I don't understand what you mean by that. I think Mitch McConnell is the one who we need to be dealing with, not Congress as a whole, not the SCOTUS as a whole. I think it needs to be separated from the argument. What Jay is saying is, is that he thinks the Democrats should take the high road here. 
but <laughs> that's that's something coming from a Republican. There, there, there are, there's only ro- one road for them yeah. to take, as as right. Clay pointed out. No, the truth of the matter is that if if Donald Trump gets this pick, it's going to be a six three court for potentially generations. Um, and if God, if Donald Trump wins again. Then I mean it's going to be the most conservative court ever in history, and conservatives might like that. But it's um you know for for people who are even left of center, there's a lot to be very very concerned about. Not just with things like Roe v. Wade or anything like that, but well, I think all, that's silly. Uh, s- simple things like um you know the uh the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, uh, being uh, repealed, um which would be devastating to a lot of low income people. So th- there's there's a lot of ramifications to that. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Mitch McConnell and the Senate agenda. Basically, the Dems would have needed four individual senators to vote no on proceeding with this nomination. Uh, Mike Pence could act as the tiebreaker if they only got three senators to get on board. So uh, the four that were being discussed were Susan Collins in Maine, who is in a very heated election battle herself in a pretty liberal state. Uh, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, who came out today and said that it's probably yes for her. So she she was at She'd be out of the picture anyway. Chuck Grassley, who apparently was on the fence about it. And of course, Mitt Romney, because he's Mitt Romney. Collins said no. We found out Murkowski said yes. Chuck Grassley ended up saying yes. Uh, And the Democrats were really holding out for good old Mitt Romney. Uh, But just yesterday, he announced that he thinks Trump should get to nominate the justice for the vacancy. So, Jay, just to inject a little bit of flashback humor here, hearkening all the way back to episode seven of the pod. What a time. Yeah, I know. Uh, We have to at least play the theme song for our Mitt Romney's Milk Toast Mistake segment. Go! Mitt Romney style. Romney style. Uh, Before we get into if this whole thing is a foregone conclusion, uh, let's talk a little bit about the actual nominees that the GOP is discussing. Jay, why don't you walk us through that? You got it. So first up, we have Barbara Lagoa, a Miami-born judge that could give Trump an edge in the crucial swing state of Florida. Lagoa is the daughter of Cuban exiles who fled Fidel Castro's rule and a graduate of Florida International University and Columbia Law School, where she was known as a feisty and engaging conversationalist. She served as a chief judge on the Florida 3rd District Court of Appeals and as a Florida Supreme Court justice before being confirmed by the Senate to the 11th Circuit in December, breezing through with a vote of 80 to 15, which included 27 Democrats. Lagoa's decision suggests that she would, of course, sit within the conservative wing of the court. She opposed a local minimum wage hike as a Florida Supreme Court justice and as a circuit court judge voted to uphold a law requiring ex-felons to pay public debts before being allowed to vote. It's likely that Lagoa's process would take longer than Republicans would like due to her having not been vetted for the Supreme Court yet, which leads me to our next nominee who has. The second possible nominee and most likely to be nominated, we have Amy Coney Barrett. She is a judge on the Chicago-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. She was also on the shortlist to fill the vacancy created in 2018 by Justice Anthony Kennedy, a seat that was filled by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The 48-year-old self-confessed Catholic grew up in a suburb of New Orleans, graduated from Rhodes College, a liberal arts college in Tennessee, affiliated with the Presbyterian Church. She went on to law school at Notre Dame on a full tuition scholarship and graduated with honors and awards in 1997. From there, she held high-profile clerkships, one with late Justice Antonin Scalia. Before headed to academia, she practiced law at a prestigious Washington, D.C. firm. 
She spent a year as a fellow of law and economics at George Washington University before heading to her alma mater, Notre Dame, to teach federal courts, constitutional law, and statutory interpretation. While at Notre Dame, Barrett signed a 2012 statement of protest condemning the accommodation that the Obama administration created for religious employers who were subject to the Affordable Care Act's birth control mandate. The statement lamented that the accommodation failed to remove the assault on individual liberty and the rights of conscience, which gave rise to the controversy. She was a member of the Federalist Society and the Conservative Legal Group. When ultimately questioned about her Catholic faith at her Seventh Circuit confirmation hearing, Barrett stressed that she did not believe it was, quote, lawful for a judge to impose personal opinions from whatever source they derive upon the law, end quote. And she pledged that her views on abortion, quote, or any other question will have no bearing on the discharge of my duties as a judge, end quote. She also added that she had fully participated in advising Justice Scalia in capital cases as a law clerk and would not, as a blanketed manner, recuse myself in capital cases if I am confirmed. However, this did not mollify the questioner, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, who suggested that Barrett had a, quote, long history of believing that religious beliefs should prevail. When questioned by Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut about Roe v. Wade, she responded by saying, quote, I'm sure every nominee before you would have personal beliefs about that precedent and many others, but all nominees are united in their belief that what they think about a precedent should not bear on how they will decide cases. Despite criticism from Feinstein and other Democrats like Blumenthal, she garnered bipartisan support at her confirmation hearing, but squeaked by in a vote of 55 to 43. Conservative legal activist Carrie Servino described Barrett as a champion of originalism during her tenure on the Seventh Circuit. She's been married for over 18 years to Jesse Barrett, a partner in a South Bend law firm who spent 13 years as a federal prosecutor in Indiana. They have seven children, two of which were adopted. You know, I got to say to all our, our listeners out there, don't say that we ever that we never did anything for you because you've gotten like six buzz histories for the price of one today. I mean, yeah, it's my pretty crazy. Tied. I think it's going to be Amy Amy Coney Barrett. What do you think, Jay? Yes, I absolutely. As I said, I think she's the obvious nominee. He does not have a lot of time, even though he keeps saying I have plenty of time. He doesn't, and yeah. she's already been vetted. No. And that's that's the long and, has, long and short has. of it. Now, Clay, Clay, do you have any opinions on this? I mean, I think Jay just said the exact point is that. He doesn't have much time and the process is done. And so, right. I mean, not that they care if people lodge process attacks against them, uh, but it's it has the luxury of being true that they've already vetted her. I'd also right. say just more cynically um, that if you are inclined to believe, not saying whether or not I do, but if you are inclined to believe that this really is just, you know, the nomination is, a, is another means of throwing red meat to his people and his voters for things that they want and care about. Obviously this person is on record quite a bit about how she feels about abortion. And she's on record in a law review article about how she feels about the ACA. And so not, I'm not attempting to say one way or the other that, Oh, well obviously she'd vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. I think that all those talking points are overblown. Yep. Um, But, but I mean, in terms of the president trying to game this out, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. two boxes that she checks. He's trying to invigorate his base. I, I mean, you know, we we can talk about this if you want, as ridiculous as all of us probably think this is, but Roe v. Wade's not getting overturned, especially not by this no. this court. And so the only no. thing he's obviously doing... Not, not yet. It could it could happen in the future. See, that's the, what I the mean. The problem is that the court gets too conservative, and then you have Clarence Thomas, who's going to... Ret- I mean, he's getting up there in age. Yeah. He's in his 70s. Yeah. Alito's pretty old. Uh, if you have all these guys start to retire again under Trump, a second term of trump and they get even more conservative more textualist judges in there very well could be overturned the current court won't correct kavanaugh and uh and gorsuch they made that very clear yeah and how they voted this year 
But, you know, we'll see what happens. Yep. Anyway, moving on, um, this might be the most important thing I talk about today personally, but I want to talk a little bit about the Democratic Party threats to this move by the GOP, uh, if any of them are worthwhile, and what the implications, if any, are of these threats. So first, I must point out that according to polls, Joe Biden has a very good chance of winning this election. There is a big misconception out there that the polls were wrong in 2016. I am uh, a big fan of Nate Silver at 538, like we talked about a couple episodes ago. Nate, Nate Silver has been pulling his hair out since the election because people are always coming up to him. Uh, and I think even, even my good buddy Jay here uh, is, uh, said something like this the other day. You know, why did you get the, why were the, why were your numbers so wrong? And he's always like, they weren't. On the day of the election, and actually two weeks before the 2016 election, the, 538 was giving Donald Trump a 35% chance of winning. Now, that might not sound like a great chance when I say that, but think about a, a casino game in Las Vegas. If there was a game that gave you a 35% chance of winning, it'd be the greatest casino game ever in history. Donald Trump had a chance, he had a path to get there, and he won. The 35% came true. And Nate Silver has actually gone back and actually proven how the polls were remarkably accurate, almost all of the polls. So if you're a right winger out there and you're thinking, well, who cares about polls? They do actually mean something. So with that said, 538 is giving Biden, as of today, a 77% chance of winning this election, which is significantly higher than Hillary Clinton had at any point during the 2016 campaign. Further, as of today, 538 is giving Democrats a 61% chance of taking back the Senate. So let's just say the idea of Joe Biden coming into office with a Democratic House and a Senate is something that is weighing on every Republican's mind in Congress right now. It is a very strong possibility. We could leave it there. So there are three big things that the Democrats are saying they would consider doing if the Republicans ram through this SCOTUS nomination. There's three threats. Threat number one, statehood for Guam, Puerto Rico, and or Washington, D.C. This would, of course, add up to six new, probably Democratic senators to the chamber and would make it so that Republicans would never win another election again and would certainly never control the Senate again. Threat number two, eliminate the filibuster. Now, we went over a little bit about the filibuster a few episodes ago, so I don't want to waste time going through it again. Google it if you don't remember what it is. But let's just say the filibuster is a very important tool to the party that's not in power. Threat number three, stacking the court. In other words, adding four or more justices that would then completely change the way in which the court has always operated. Now, let's all talk a little about whether or not threatening something like this is a good idea. And I want each of us to take our personal partisan hats off here and think from a strictly strategic standpoint. Pretend you have no party affiliation, you're not a Republican or a Democrat. What is your take, Jay? And then we'll go to Clay, and then I'll give you mine. Take away for a second what we mentioned earlier. When the president is acting constitutionally and the Senate is acting constitutionally, to threaten to upend the Constitution as we know it, I have a serious, serious problem with that. Explain how any of those things is upending the Constitution. Okay, well, let's start with this with statehood. Did it upend the Constitution when Oklahoma was added as a state? What about Hawaii? What about Arizona? There was precedent for that. Typically, the country only adds new states when they reach a critical mass of population and present a local consensus for statehood. D.C. statehood would be contra contrary to the constitutional prov provision requiring a national capital subject to Congress. 
Puerto Rico has no consensus support for statehood, as there was with Alaska and Hawaii in the 50s. And the combined population of the four other territories they can make states, which is uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, America, Samoa, Guam, and Northern Mariana Islands, well, the entire population is 375,000 less than the population of our smallest state, Wyoming. Is There's no precedent for adding states. Well, but as we just covered, we don't need precedent to keep from upending the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, this I think it's apples and oranges to compare the two. Dude. We're talking about a Supreme Court pick, and you know, I'm the liberal here. Uh, we're talking about a Supreme Court pick versus literally Republicans never being able to win again. I mean, there, there would be, it would be a dramatic change to the country if we added three more states with Democratic senators. But that's, that's a ton of crystal balling. No, a giant swath of the, of, of the public would be, they wouldn't be represented. And guess what happened last time that happened? The Civil War. Yeah, there would be a constitutional crisis for sure. And, and actually, uh, I heard, I think it was Dennis Prager the other day, uh, explain it pretty well. If there was ever, I mean, if these things were to come into fruition and we added three new states and they stacked the courts, especially, and people in conservative states like Texas or like uh, Mississippi really started to feel like the federal government does not represent them at all, there would really be no reason for them to stay. And, you know, you would have a serious crisis on your hands. My contention, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take the floor in a second here, Clay. But my contention here is that this is not a good strategy for Democrats because and, and I said I promised earlier in the show that I, I would come back to Democrats overplaying their hand. This is a perfect yeah. example of when Democrats overplay their hand. They act like little children rather than, you know, it's sort of like, oh, there's a there's a problem with the cops. Rather than fix it, let's just defund the cops. Let's get rid of police officers. They always go that step further that makes people who are in the middle say, these guys are crazy. I want nothing to do with this. I guess I'm going to have to vote for Trump. Yeah, you, you just stated my central political philosophy, by the way, Rob. That the, left, that the left goes crazy too often and so no one listens. <laughs> you know, just to, to add on to what Riz is saying, the Senate Democrats, they haven't waited for anything to start firing shots. They are currently limiting the ability to hold committee hearings and seem to be poised to continue to battle over ridiculous procedure as long as this fight goes on. Chuck Schumer already invoked the two-hour rule which limits the ability to hold hearings after the Senate has been in session for more than two frickin' hours. This limits, for example, right. what needed to happen the other day, which is a Senate Intelligence Committee uh, to hold a meeting at 2.30 p.m. or any time past noon with the Director of National Counterintelligence, oh, to discuss election security, kind of important. It's not good for our country, yeah, but what they're the, doing. The question, the question then is, what do they do to fight back? And I agree that, you know, it's sort of like the, a good analogy I, I, I personally think is is apt in the situation is like how i deal with my kids like if if my kids were like you know something every once in a while they come up with really crazy ideas clay has has two kids around my kids age so he knows just he knows exactly what i'm talking about but like every once in a while my daughter will be like i want to eat candy mm -hmm. for dinner and and if obviously i'll say no like no you're not having candy for dinner and then if she does the whole i'm gonna throw a temper tantrum because i'm not getting my way thing and then if the temper tantrum gets severe enough, I start saying, well, you know what? Okay, you can have a little bit of your dinner and then I'll let you eat the candy. Then in her mind, she's won, mm -hmm. right? And I think, I think the Republicans are sort of thinking about it. It's, it's almost like you don't negotiate yeah, with terrorists, Yeah, that's exactly right? how they're thinking about it. And, and the Democrats going that, just I, that step agreed. further, the way they always do, if the Democrats didn't act like this, they would maybe get somewhere. So, so what, what I think Joe Biden should do is he should sit down with Mitch McConnell. And, and, and I think if he did this, he would win this election walking away. Yeah. Sit down with him and say, listen, 
I will sign whatever I have to sign right here. We could put it on record that if I become president, which is a very strong possibility, according to the polling, mm-hmm. I will not blow up the filibuster. Yeah. I will not add any more states. I will not uh, stack the court. I'll put that in writing. And all you have to do in exchange is wait until the election for this for this nomination. Let the American people decide this. Um, now, Mitch, being the calculated cold that he is will probably say no but then joe biden can come back and said we did everything we could we're not going to blow up the system we're going to be the adults in the room and you know what we're going to win the election and that would be that would be coming from it from a position of strength rather than being babies about it and saying we're gonna we're gonna you know defund the police and you know put rocks in everyone's socks it's just stupid (laughs) i even think i even think if they I mean, we don't live in an era where this is possible, but I even think if they were to pick a moderate justice that both sides could agree on, that would be a wonderful thing. I mean, you know, it's like so pie in the sky for now, but I would love if that were that could be possible in this day and age. Yeah, I I agree. I agree with most of most of what was all just said. I as I said a moment ago, I completely sympathize with the irritation that you feel, Rob, over the going to level 15 on a scale of 1 to 10 right away anytime anyone says anything totally get that really the only the only point of relative disagreement i see here is this characterization of if you do something within the rules that that is akin to blowing up the system i'm air quoting again folks um like if you have control of the senate you get to do certain things. If you have a 60-40 majority, you get to do more things. And the political party that has 60-40 or more for the last 200-some-odd years has been doing things that the other side doesn't like. And so this, yeah. this notion that it's somehow in bad faith or unconstitutional or upending our system, I mean, that's the system at work. Now, that's a separate question from, is it good strategy? But this notion, right. this notion that the Democrats should be um, should be lambasted for their anti-Americanness if they find a way to game the system in their favor. I mean, just wait till we get to the episode on voting. But once again, it doesn't make it right because then you have a de- of course, but not, then you Jay. have a degradation. But then to, stop to calling zero. yourself a Republican. I still have an, a Republican ideology. The politics of it. I, I claim a plague on both your houses how many times in this show? Uh, of so course, I'm not going to stop being Republican because my ideology right. is conservative. Am I a fan of all the, right. the, the politics that my party has played? No. But does it right. mean that I think the Democrats should go and play dirtier? No. That's not how this right. system was designed. It's not how I want America to be, and we can all be better. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. Yeah, but, that's, but you just said it. We can all be better. And currently, there is one half of the electorate who has decided and has declared quite loudly we're not interested in being better. What do you do in that right. situation? Elect other people. Yeah, it's true. All right, guys. So we have uh, put you through a lot during this episode. We uh, we talked about RBG. We uh, gave you a lot of buzzed histories on all sorts of things, on case law, on Supreme Court cases. Uh, we talked about a lot. We talked about Mitch McConnell, otherwise known as Cocaine Mitch. By the way- I really prefer Voldemort. Uh, 
Yeah, well, there's. I want you guys all to look up the article, the kooky, the kooky tale of Cocaine Mitch. It's a Washington Post article, and it it goes through the entire history of why he was called Cocaine Mitch. It's actually a funny story. Uh, I was reading the story while we were going over case law. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I probably made, and you forgot to Rob. On this episode, yeah. we introduced me, and I think I made a lot of fans. Oh right, I forgot about tons, you. You, know, you you blended in so much now. Yeah, yeah. Good job. So uh, Clay made a lot of fans. He's 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 clearly the uh, you know the 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 brain of the operation here, yeah. and that's why he's going to be a, an incredible editor in chief. We cannot we cannot wait for you guys to see this venture that we're going to be launching. In fact, we have a branding session tomorrow. We do. So uh, yeah, things are uh, are coming along. You guys just wait. Uh, anyway, uh, anything else to say, Jay? We were pressed for time. Obviously, you know, we're not in the, we're, we're in the two hour episode game. We're not in the three hour episode uh, game. So uh, I had a culture corner ready for you guys, but I'm just going to say it here. Cause we were pressed for time. Uh, go watch the West wing. It's episode 17 actually episode 17 season five uh which is hysterical because this is episode 17 but go watch it it's called the supremes it's a great not only is it a great primer on the supreme court it's what a country would look like if our parties could come together and sit at the negotiating table and actually come to a conclusion where everyone's happy it's a great watch aaron sorkin is a genius and everyone acts incredibly go watch the west wing episode 17 season five all right guys we will be back next week uh Thanks for hanging with us. Lots of digest yep. here. Listen to it over and over all again. Listen long. to it over the whole week. Don't try to digest it all at Man, once. Calm down. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks again. Good night. Be good. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. 